get started today. Um, I, I want to do something a little different this morning before we start. I, I'm going to ask y'all to stand with me. And I've just had this on my mind uh, all morning long. Um, I would like for us to just, I, I call this a, a perspective prayer. Um, sometimes it, I really need a change in perspective. And I find myself in need of that today. Uh, I just need God to, to change my perspective. And I have a certain responsibility in that. So y'all can pray with me if you feel so led and, and use these words as just kind of a, a guide for you. But I just want to thank God for the stuff that I have today and not obsess over the stuff that I don't have. So let's pray this morning. Lord, I, would, I just stand before you today and I'm thankful. I really am. I'm thankful. I'm grateful. I woke up this morning. Lord, there was breath in my lungs. My heart works. My lungs work. My stomach works. God, my eyes and ears work. Lord, you gave me ears to hear with and eyes to see with. God, I've got two working hands and two working arms and two working feet and two working legs. And all of this comes from you. Lord, I'll drink clean water today. I'll have more than enough to eat today. God, I've got a home. Lord, I've got clothes and transportation. People around me that love me, that care about me, that support me, that want what's good for me. Lord, you bless me with friends and you bless me with family. You bless me with a great church, Lord. Lord, there's so many things that you have put in my life, and I just want to stand here today and tell you that I am grateful that I thank you. I don't have everything I want, but Lord, I've got way more than I need. And I just have to say thank you for that. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And I acknowledge that today in Jesus' name. God bless you. You can be seated. You know that matters. Um, perspective, it, it matters. And um, it's easy for me. I don't know about you. Uh, but it's easy for me to get uh, ticked off and hung up on the stuff that I don't have, that I think I need, or that I really want. Uh, but it doesn't take very long of running down the list of the stuff that is in my life for me to change my perspective about what God has blessed me with. And it is a lot. It is a lot. Okay, uh, this is the day that many of you have been waiting for since January. Um, we started this series back in January based on a book uh, by Steve Timmis called I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. And today we finish. This is, this is the last one. So if you've been uh, anxiously awaiting lesson number 10, uh, this is it. This is it. Um, for those of you that have missed some of these, I want to remind you that we upload these podcasts every week and they can be accessed via the church website or um, through the church app. And uh, we're also on Twitter and Facebook if you're interested in connecting that way. But um, I know this is the last one, and some of you guys have been here for every single one of them. Some of you missed some here and there. I just want to go back through these one more time, one last time, go back through these before we launch into lesson number 10. Chapter 1 was on deny yourself and take up your cross from Luke chapter 6. It's only by dying to self in the little ways of my day-to-day -day life that I'll be willing to lay down my life in the big moments of crisis. Chapter 2 was on love your enemies from Mark chapter 8. 
And we learned that in a world where hating those who hate you is not just accepted, but expected, Jesus calls his people to be radically different and wants us to love, pray for, and do good to the people who hate us, curse us, and abuse us. Chapter 3 was on forgiveness from Matthew chapter 18. Jesus expects his grace toward us to produce grace from us toward others. And when we choose to forgive, we're saying that not only do we trust God with our own sin, but with the sin that has been done against us as well. Chapter 4 was about serving both God and money. And Luke chapter 16, Jesus shows us a very concrete example of a kingdom principle and that how we use our money reveals what is most important to us and what we really believe. We are stewards. And the things that we have do not belong to us. These working eyes of mine today are not mine. I am a steward of these eyes. What am I doing with the eyes that He's given? These ears that I have today that work, they're not my ears. They're His ears. What am I doing with those ears? And this tongue, that's not mine either. It's His. What am I doing with it? So I need to stop living as if these things belong to me because they don't. They belong to God. And I'm just a manager. Chapter 5 was on stay awake. This was, that was a weird one. Mark chapter 13. Um, but for those of us who follow Him, who claim Jesus as our Savior, we are to live our lives in the light of His return all the time. We should be looking for it. We should be prepared for it. And Jesus told us to be on guard and stay awake because He knows that we have this tendency to have problems with perspective and problems with stewardship, and those things tend to lull us to sleep. He told us, make sure you stay awake. Chapter 6, Luke chapter 10, love your enemy. And this was uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus let us know that mercy and compassion are blind. Mercy doesn't make judgments about the person in need. Compassion doesn't set limits on the help it gives. And he also taught us that we cannot eliminate anyone from the category of neighbor. Chapter 7 came from Matthew 5, blessed are the persecuted. Jesus and his followers, Jesus told his followers that the reason why men hate you is because they hate me. And while persecution is never good, God uses it for good. And we went on to see in that lesson that in a world full of darkness, the appearance of light will produce one of two reactions. Either some people who prefer the dark will try to extinguish the light they see, or people who are beginning to find that darkness suffocating are going to run toward that light. But it's going to produce one of those two reactions. And Jesus said, you, well, I said, I am the light of the world. But he said, you have a light, you're not going to hide it under a bushel. Chapter 8 was on family. Uh, from Mark 3, Jesus said that your primary community isn't defined by bloodlines, DNA, mommies, or daddies. But that family that you have of moms, dads, and brothers and sisters is an earthly prototype of an eternal community that Jesus is creating. Community and family aren't defined by human blood, which is what we think. The parameters and boundaries of safe walls of family are set by the divine blood of Jesus and then last week, we talked about not being angry. 
Jesus said, don't be angry. Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to cut that real short and just say that what we get angry about reveals what we want to protect and guard. Our anger is a surefire way to identify what we really love or what we really desire. And Jesus warned us against a self-righteous anger that comes from a flawed perspective of God and idolizes self above others. That was all review. This week, I want to talk about making disciples. In 1967, uh, Frank Sinatra and his daughter Nancy released a song, and it was entitled Something Stupid. And I don't know, how many of you have heard that song? I I know there are some Sinatra fans in here. I really enjoy Sinatra, but I'd never heard this one before. But the, the basic premise of the song is this. We go out and we have this perfect evening. You know, the moon is bright and it's romantic and we enjoy each other's company and Oh, it's oh so perfect, couldn't ask for anything better. But then I go and spoil it by saying something stupid, like, I love you. This final, cont- or this final saying of Jesus that we'll look at today kind of reminds me of that song. You know, context matters. I've been on that little soapbox for a while. Context matters. If you're going to examine the Bible, read the Bible, interpret the Bible, make sure you put it in context. Um, So let's look at the context here. And um, we're going to be going to uh, Matthew chapter 5, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 28. But let's look at the context of what's going on there. Jesus had endured the cross at this point. He had walked out of the grave. Sin and death had been defeated. And this is the greatest moment in creation so far. And if you're going to have a party, then this is the time to have a party. Here where we are in Matthew chapter 28. And that perfect moment is made even better because we find ourselves on a mountain. Now mountains are awesome, right? Uh, It was on the mountain that we got the Sermon on the Mount. It was on the mountain that Jesus uh, appeared with Moses and Elijah to the disciples and God spoke. That was in Matthew 17. So now here we are, we're back on the mountain, Jesus is risen. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is glorified. This is going to be some kind of party. And maybe now, Jesus is going to set up His kingdom. Remember, these were Jews. This is what they had been expecting all along, these disciples. That Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom, overthrow the Romans, all of that stuff. So maybe now this is it. Maybe now He's going to claim His kingdom. Maybe now Jesus is going to rule the earth. I mean, the past three years have been a little rough. I mean, there have been times where we didn't have enough to eat. There were times where we didn't have a place to sleep. Uh, We've been from the top to the bottom and everywhere in between. People hate us. People love us. People love Jesus. People hate Jesus. And we've been on this roller coaster ride with Jesus for the last three years. But you know, now, here on the mountain, after Jesus has died and been risen, I mean, it's all about to pay off. And that sense of expectation only heightens because what Jesus says is, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, I mean, that's it. I mean, this is it. Go, go Jesus, right? Say it, Lord, this is... But instead, what we get is this Frank Sinatra moment. 
he goes and spoils it by saying something stupid. Like, go and make disciples of all nations. And let's look at it. Let's look at the Sinatra moment. Matthew 28, 18-20, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation today. It says, And Jesus came and told His disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. In the Greek, it means peoples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, it seems like Jesus is going to claim the kingdoms of the world. I mean, they've come full circle, right? The earthly ministry of Jesus ends almost exactly where it began. They are back in the Galilee of the Gentiles, right? They're back in Galilee. That's where Jesus came from. He was a Galilean. So what started so meekly, right? We started with uh, the birth in a manger in Bethlehem. Now this is going to spread through the whole world. He is God. He is King. He is victorious over death. He's victorious over sin. But the way that His kingdom is going to spread is not in a snap of the fingers or an instant. Not with you know some type of magical wave of Jesus' glorified hand. I mean, He could give this divine shout, right? This divine order, but that's not how it happens either. The kingdom of God, it seems, will be won inconveniently by the disciples of Jesus having to take the trouble of going into all the world and make other disciples. That's how it's going to happen. Now, how stupid is that? I mean, there's an easy way to do this, right, Greg? He's Jesus, all authority. Let it be. And that's it, it happens. But we're not going to do it that way. Instead, I've spent the last three years making disciples of you, and now guess what? You're going to go make more disciples. That's how we're going to do it. I mean, Jesus could do it by Himself. All of the nations are His. He's got all power and authority, so why not just claim it? So here's the thing. Instead of me, and instead of you being able to sit back and you know bask in this reflected glory of Jesus, what He does is He brings me into the game. He takes me off the bench, pulls me out of the dugout, and He expects me to be a part. That's, okay, we'll carry the baseball-softball analogy a little bit farther. Jesus could pitch, play shortstop, first base, second base, catch, and all of the outfield all by Himself, but that's not how He chooses to do it. He gets us involved. And it's not a little bit part. It's not that you know cameo role of Stan Lee in all the Marvel movies. Okay? Because Jesus said that I want you to go into all of the world. I, I, I mean, that sounds like pretty serious business to me. That's, that's a pretty serious commitment. But once again, and one more time, 
You know, I know this is Jesus, right? So I know that it's not really stupid. I know it can't be stupid. Just like every other time that we've looked at, whenever you start looking at these words that Jesus said, you're going to find out that these are really words of life. They're words of sanity. They are words that really put things in perspective the way they should be. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I want you to notice that this command that Jesus gives to go and disciple, that's, that's the picture in the middle, but he frames that. This is really cool stuff. He frames it. He frames it with a powerful promise. In verse 18, Jesus leads with, all authority has been given to me. And in verse 20, Jesus finishes with, I am with you always. So sandwiched between, I have all authority and I'm going to always be with you is this directive to us, go and make disciples. It's important to recognize because, you know, we're going to feel disappointment. We're going to feel overwhelmed by expectations sometimes. But we've got the promise that the one who sent us on this crazy mission to disciple the entire world has all authority and is always going to be there. Is that rain? Wow. Okay, so Jesus isn't going to do it all by Himself in this big spectacular superhero moment. But all authority does belong to Him and His presence with us is an ironclad guarantee. So the command that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 28, it consists of two elements. He said, go and disciple. And the means by which people are discipled are baptism and teaching. So we're going to take a little bit of time to unpack those things. Let's look at the first one. Jesus said, go. One word. Two letters. A single syllable. Can't get much more simple than go. Simple, direct, unambiguous. Go means don't stay here. It means don't hang around. It means don't put your feet up and relax, Jason. You've got a mission to fulfill, and it will only be done if you go. So as we all sit there sipping on our venti, skinny, double-shot, caramel macchiatos, we should be able to hear Jesus asking us, what part of go do you not understand? The single simple word gives meaning, clarity, and purpose to our lives. Guys, extending the kingdom of God is a big deal. I can't play, I, I can't play a direct role in what happened at the cross. I can take part in it, right? Jesus, I am a sinner, and I need your blood to cover my sin. I can take part in what he did. But I, I can't play a direct role in that. My blood isn't going to do anything for anybody. No matter how dramatic the sacrifice might be, it's not going to do anything for anybody. There's nothing for me to give or actively do at the foot of the cross. I can't play a direct role in what happened in the tomb either. I can't raise anybody from the dead. I can't raise myself from the dead. I can't take away the power of sin and death. I can't do that. But the instruction to go brings me 
and all the rest of us in this room, it brings us into play. We are no longer um, passive beneficiaries, right, of some type of uh, eternal life insurance policy. Go means we get to be a part in what is happening. We get to play a role in what he's doing. We are all collaborators with Christ in this, this awesome kingdom expansion project that's been on the book since the beginning of eternity. Jesus has had this plan to expand his creation or his kingdom since creation started. And this command, go, means every single one of us have a part to play in that plan. It's not just God at work, it's God at work in us and God at work through us. You know, one consistent teaching found in the Bible is that God has designs on the whole planet. I want you to think about that. You know, this is why the story begins with creation and Adam and Eve and not just with Abraham. I mean, why do Adam and Eve really matter if everything's going to start with Abraham and the nation of Israel? But God's global ambitions are explicit from the very beginning. In Genesis 1 and 28, He told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. Then whenever He spoke to Abraham, He told him that the nations, plural, not the nation, the nations would be blessed because of Him. God placed Israel in the promised land to be a light and a witness to all of the nations around it. You can go all the way through the Bible, all the way to Revelation, you can, Revelation chapter 7 talks about, you know, John sees this vision of this countless, innumerable gathering of people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language gathered around the throne. God's got designs on the whole planet. And it's been that way from the beginning. He's never been interested in just being a tribal deity. I'm going to be a God, but just to this little tribe of people. That's never been his interest or his aim. He has no desire to be restricted by borders or by cultures. He wants the whole world. And He wants us to reach the whole world. How are the nations going to be reached? Well, it starts with people going. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but the command to go was written in the contract from the very beginning. It shouldn't be much of a surprise to us. One last word about go before we move on. And this is really cool to me. Jesus prefaces the command to go with the word therefore. You read it in the scriptures. Therefore, go. Well, that means that there must have been something before that. This is a connecting word. Jesus is connecting his command go to the statement of all authority is given to me. So that's why we're able to go. And that's why we go in the first place. We don't go on our own. We don't go under our own steam or by our own power or our own knowledge or strength or ability. We go in the confidence of the one who has all authority and has the power to sustain us when we go. Therefore, go. All right, the next thing we want to look at is disciples. He said, go and make disciples. It doesn't seem as simple as go, the word disciple. Eight letters, three syllables, but it's really not that hard. Matthew chapter 4, verses 19 through 20 tell us what a disciple is. 
A disciple is someone who obeys the call of Jesus to follow him and gives up everything to do so. Not hard to define. A disciple is a disciple is a disciple. You follow Jesus and you give up everything to do it. That's a disciple. You don't get different classes of disciples, guys. Okay, there's not a sit at home and kick my feet up disciple. There's not a I'd rather be on the golf course disciple. There's not a wait until I get that promotion disciple. There's not a wait until all of my kids are grown and out of the house disciple. There's not a wait until I've got my life straight disciple. There's not a wait until I've got all of the answers from the Bible so I can answer people's questions disciple. A disciple is a disciple is a disciple. You follow Jesus and you give up everything to do it. The disciples Jesus was talking to, they understood that. I mean, they had watched Him live it. And now He was telling them, I want you to go, go and make more of you. Disciples make disciples. Jesus tells them how? Through baptism and teaching. Go ye into all the world, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. You know, baptism, especially for Pentecostals, we get, we get really, we get, I don't know, there's a pucker factor involved whenever people start talking about baptism, right? Baptism, guys, is, it's, it's just the way in. It's the way in. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to overly simplify something that is absolutely beautiful and amazing. But if we could just think about it that way this morning, baptism is how you become a part of God's family. It, is, it, it tells a story. It speaks about dying to a way of life, a set of values, this self-constructed identity, and I'm going to rise into a new way of life, a new radical set of values, this divinely designed identity. Baptism is about being born into the kingdom. It's the point of entry. It's the birthing pool, if I could put it that way, into the family. Now, we know that there's a baptism of water and a baptism of spirit, right? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you were born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, well, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus said, no, you're not getting it. That's not what I'm talking about. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Now, here, I don't want to get real hung up on the method of baptism today. If you've got questions about the method of baptism, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. What I want to key on is what happens with what happens after. If we're going to run this analogy out, if baptism is the birth, what do we do with babies after they're born? Smack them. We love them. We feed them. We take care of them. We clothe them. We show them. I'm getting ahead of myself. Babies aren't born into families and then just left in the birthing pool to sink or swim on their own. In functional families... They are nurtured and trained and prepared for what? For adulthood. 
And this is the second part of the discipleship plan. Jesus, He said there's two parts to it. There's baptism, there's birth into, but then there's a second part and that's teaching. First, they've been born into the family. Right there, they've born into the kingdom, but now you've got to teach the babies. The primary influence, guys, on and y'all know this, on, on an infant, on a toddler, on a small child is the family unit of which they are a part. That's their primary influence. And it's in that context where children are taught and where they learn values. How is that teaching done? Do you sit down with your kids and say, now, Cole, in situation X, Y, Z, whenever so-and-so comes to you and says blah, 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 what you need to do is one, two, three, four. Those situations may occur, but they are rare. More often than not, how do we teach our kids? It's real life settings, these situations that come up in life, right? You're, you're having a conversation when you're out walking the dog or chasing the cat or washing the car. A lot of it is, is it happens in response to events in our lives where someone's messed up or misbehaved or there's been some type of error in judgment. But in all those situations, it's up close and personal. It's, it's a life-on-life life type of teaching. It has to be. And the primary teaching and learning model is observation. Almost across the board. Now, you got some of those weird outliers that say, no, just give me a manual full of words. But most people are going to at least want a picture and most people are going to say, if I've got a choice between a manual full of words, a manual of words and pictures, and somebody showing me how to do it, I'm going with the last one. I want to watch somebody. It's observation. That's why teachers, okay, I'm, I'm an educator, been one for 18 years. That's why teachers are taught to model. You model behavior. You don't tell, you show. You don't model thinking, or you don't tell thinking. The way that you should think about this piece of literature is no, no, you show them. You lead them through it. They watch you analyze it. They watch you break it down. You don't tell, you show. So children see how their parents, watch this, children see how their parents relate or react and they learn from that. So you teach them to obey by obeying yourself. Not just telling them to obey because they're going to learn more through observation than they are through just a, some words. Or you teach them to disobey by disobeying yourself. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to crack on formal teaching times because really that's what we're in the middle of right here, okay? But I do want to emphasize the need for us to bring teaching just off of the platform or out of the Sunday school room and embed it into life. The Bible is so central to our identity and it's the, the best context... Context matters. The best context for it to be taught is in the setting of real life stuff and real life relationships. 
This is the second part of making disciples. These babies are born into the kingdom, into the family through baptism, but they are taught the values, taught the values of the family through living with the family. That's what Jesus was asking them to do. Go out and and baptize some babies into the kingdom and then let them be around and in and a part of the family and watch you guys. Just like you've been watching me for the last three and a half years, watch you watched how I do it. Let them watch how you do it. Teach them and thereby make disciples. Oh, we're doing good. Um, this, this is going to be a little bit of a problem for some of you. For some more than others. But it seems pretty clear to me at least that Jesus expected this mission of going and making disciples to be a group effort. He told the disciples whenever they were all together, go and make disciples. He didn't call them aside individually. You know, hey Troy, listen, I'm not going to tell this to all the other guys, but I want you to go and make some disciples just like you. And then go over there and talk to, to, to Amy. Say, Amy, listen, I want you to go make all together, we're all right here on the mountain together, I'm telling all of you at the same time together, I want you to go and baptize and make disciples. You're born into a family, you learn with a family, and you fulfill the mission as a family. And for some of us, that's the problem, because some of us like to work alone. Any of those people in here, you just rather work by yourself? Ain't nothing wrong with that. But we got to we got to be careful because that that human tendency to say you know what I, if I do this by myself number one I'm gonna make sure it's done right okay and number two I don't have to worry about somebody else messing up what I've done I mean there's all kinds of good reasons for working alone but you know here in the church we we want to become like gospel paratroopers right working behind enemy lines. Cut off from the main force with nothing to get us by but our wits and our Jesus ninja skills? Yeah. You know, but maybe you want to be the hero. Well, that pastor's got so many problems and the leadership's got so many problems. I'm going to go out and make this happen in spite of everybody. You watch me. I'm going to be the hero. Maybe you just don't want all of the hypocrites in church cramping your style. But I'm sorry, Ninja Gospel Commando. That's not how it works. That's not how Jesus designed it to be. You cannot deny, guys, you cannot deny this corporate together dimension to the mission that Jesus assigned. All right, in Mark chapter 6, the first time Jesus ever sent the disciples out anywhere. First time, Mark chapter 6. You know how he did it? Two by two. The first time he did it, he still wouldn't send them out individually alone. The day of Pentecost, whenever the Holy Ghost came for the first time, what were they doing? Praying together. And then, even after that, right, the day of Pentecost, and then 3,000 more get the Holy Ghost. 
Even then, they still didn't immediately disperse. You read through the book of Acts. They continued to meet in homes together. They met in the temple together. They shared food. They shared possessions. They listened to the disciples' teaching. Now, after Stephen was finally martyred and, and, and you know stoned to death in, in Acts chapter 8, they expelled a bunch of them from Jerusalem. Then they went out, and you know what they did? They planted churches. So this whole, I'm going to do it all by myself thing, that's just, that's not book of Acts anyway. And I, I get it, because I understand that for some of us, not for all of us, but for some of us, church is the problem. It, sometimes church seems very formal, very static, and we've got this energy man in us and it's just eating at us and we just want to just go and do and achieve. And, but we've got to do it within the confines of this thing called church. And the church, I mean, it's got the agility of an oil tanker. You know? It's slow sometimes and, and ponderous. And so some people wind up falling into a coma rather than being developed and dispatched. I'm going to say this. It's not going to sit well with everybody. Probably not going to sit well with anybody. It doesn't sit well with me most of the time. But I'm going to tell you this. And this is, this is not, I don't know that I've got scripture for it. It's just what I've found in my life. Church is going to be what you make church be. It's going to be what you make it be. Okay? And if you want to be developed and you want to be involved, then you start developing and getting involved. Develop somebody else and get involved. If you want to see the, the thing turn, then get about the business of turning. Okay? That's just, that's, church is going to be what you make it be. Church is how Jesus planned it. That's the best I can say. It's how Jesus planned it. Jesus planned it to happen together. And if you want to call that thing, I mean, the whole hip thing nowadays is to call it community. Okay, so if you want to call it community because that's hip and cool to you, then call it community. If you want to call it church and fellowship because you're old-fashioned, then call it church and fellowship. But that's how Jesus planned it to happen. This whole go and make disciples thing is a together community church thing. Last point and I'll be done. Go doesn't necessarily require moving. Like you picking up from Central or Watson or Baton Rouge or wherever you live. It, it, it might not. It may. But it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to move. It can mean go to your neighborhood. Your subdivision where you live. It can mean go to the mothers that you meet uh, at, at the school functions. It can mean go to the guys you play fantasy football with. It can mean go to the colleagues that you're around at work. It can mean from wherever you happen to be, go. But it always means go. It might not necessarily mean moving, but it's always going to mean go. It's always going to mean you've got to take some responsibility. You've got to get in the game. You've got to love the people you're surrounded by. You've got to be passionate about what Jesus has done in your life. It's always going to mean that. Now, do I wish Jesus hadn't said it? Of course I don't. Of course not. It turns out it wasn't a Frank Sinatra moment after all. Okay? Jesus didn't say anything stupid. 
I'm going to give you this quote straight from the book. No filter, no Jason Cooper filter on this one. Like every other statement of Jesus that we've looked at together, I'm very glad He said what He did. Of course, each thing He said turns my world upside down, but that only means it is then the right way up. His words are truth and the gateway to life. Every one of them brings meaning and sanity into what would otherwise be a pointless and insane existence. Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is my King of Kings. He is my Lord of Lords. And our hearts should hang on every word, even the words that are inconvenient, even the words we sometimes wish He hadn't said, because those are the words that we need the most. The words we need the most. We're done. I wish Jesus hadn't said that. It's finished. Let there be jubilation. Let there be rejoicing. Um, next series, it, it's coming. Uh, it's going to be fun. The next series is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, the four G's. We're going to look at a spiritual diagnostic tool. I know that sounds like a whole lot of fun there, but just hang with me. It's going to be good stuff. Uh, the four G's. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is good. Jesus is great. And I can't remember what the fourth one is, but we'll get there. It's okay. Um, anyway, good stuff. I've been uh, been working on it uh, a little bit already, um, but it's uh, it's going to be a great series. So uh, anyway, that's what's coming up. I already got the next one planned. Let's pray and we'll go. Lord, we thank you so much for um, what you've said to us today. You said go. You said make disciples. You said to baptize them. And you said to teach them God as a family. And we're going to do it your way. Not by ourselves, not the Lone Ranger Commando. But we're going to do it your way, God. Because you said it was going to take a church. That it's got to take a family. That we've got to do it together. Thank you so much for every word. Every word that you've said because we need them all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.